Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Noah Reisman is a professor of history and he specialises in Australian history of sexuality, gender and race. He is author and co-author of five books, including Defending Country, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Military Service Since 1945, Serving in Silence, Australian LGBT Servicemen and Women, Indigenous Peoples and the Second World War, The Politics, Experiences and Legacies of War in the US, Canada, Australia and New Zealand, Pride and Defence, the Australian Military and LGBTI Service since 1945. And he has a new book. It's called Transgender Australia, A History Since 1910. And this is the first book on Australian trans history, exploring the lives and impacts of trans and gender diverse Australians. Trans and gender diverse people have always been present in Australian life, whether they've lived quiet lives in the country, performed in cabaret shows, worked on the streets or run for parliament. But over the last century, there have been remarkable changes in how they've been identified and expressed themselves. In the book, he draws on hundreds of oral history interviews and previously unexamined documents and media reports highlighting how trans people have tried to live authentically while navigating a society that often treated them like outcasts. This book is really amazing and I encourage everyone to go out there and read it if this topic is of interest to you. And I warmly welcome to The Politics of Everything, Noah. Thank you so much for the invitation. Pleasure to be here. Okay. I ask my guests this question every time and I'm curious to know, um, did you always think you'd be an academic or when you were a young kid, did you have different dreams and ambitions? Uh, Look, I don't think I knew what an academic was when I was a kid. So no, definitely not. I think when I was really young, I did want to be a teacher um, because my mother was a teacher. Um, And then by about high school, I actually wanted to be a lawyer. And then I went to uni and you can tell from my accent that was in the US. Yes. Did you study law? No, I didn't because in the US, I was about to say in the US, you do law school as a postgrad degree. Um, But so during my undergraduate degree, I studied history and one of one class I took while I was on exchange here in Australia, I actually like it was a legal history class and I read the Mabo ruling and I was like, I do not want to be a lawyer anymore. Um, having read this, if this is what lawyers have to do, reading legal stuff, I, I want out. And so I decided, so I went back to my other passion, which is educating. But I mean, my mother was a teacher. By then, my sister was a teacher. Didn't really want to deal with the administrative excesses. Side of it, yes. Yep, or the discipline side of it. So I thought, righto, let's go on and become a university professor. And turns out we do have to deal with a lot of administrative stuff. I was going to say, how did you really avoid that? That doesn't sound like I haven't, and it gets worse every year. But I did get to avoid the discipline side of it, at least. Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Getting into today's topic, what is, I guess, the sort of summary of the historical narrative around transgender and gender diverse people in Australia that maybe a lot of people aren't aware of? 
Well, look, so obviously there's a few hundred pages I could speak about with this. Um, to, to try to give you the abridged version, first, I would, we would emphasize, you know, gender diverse people have always been on this continent since time immemorial. There are examples of Aboriginal words that speak for a third gender or a non-binary gender in various Aboriginal languages. And, you know, there are some examples of rock art that, that depict sister girls. Um so gender diverse people have always been here, but the language around trans didn't really come to Australia till sort of a little bit in the 1930s, and then especially after the Second World War. So before the Second World War, and I choose 1910 as the starting point in this book, not as for some arbitrary reason, but because that's the year that the German sexologist Magnus Hirschfeld published a book called, and I know it's an outdated term now, but the, the term, the book that he published was called Transvestites, The Erotic Desire to Cross-Dress. That's the beginning of this language of trans in Western discourse. Doesn't come to Australia right away, but as I was saying a moment well, ago... We're I, always behind here, I have to say. Well, not always. <laughs> well, also, I mean, they didn't have, you know, internet then and, you know, no, telephones were, were... so. But, I mean, look, it, it took time to take off, even in Europe and in the UK and eventually the US. And it, it's in the 1930s, it sort of slowly comes here primarily through sexologists and psychiatrists. So before the Second World War, you can't really definitively call a person trans if they didn't call themselves trans. So in the book I do in the first chapter, look at examples of people who were either you know living or dressing in a gender different from their sex assigned at birth. And in looking at them and the little we can gather from the newspapers or court cases about these people to try and you know, think, imagine if these are trans possibilities is the way that I put it. After the Second World War, you have um, a lot more knowledge and a lot more medical technology available, let's say. And Christine Jurgensen, the famous American GI who transitioned in 1952, gets global media attention, including here in Australia. And so you begin to see people in Australia looking at this example, looking at other examples they're now seeing in the newspaper and going, that's what I've been feeling. That's what I've been experienced. It, it gave a name, it gave a label to something that a lot of people were experiencing, but didn't really know how to articulate and didn't know was, wasn't just them. Um, we're able to break out of that isolation. So as the language of trans sort of takes off in the 1950s, you begin to see more people being able to identify with it. You begin to see subcultures emerge, um, um, especially in places like Sydney, there's the sort of what was then called the camp scene. We would probably use the word queer now. So it was, you know, sort of non-normative sexuality and gender and not necessarily distinguishing between the L, the G, the B, the T, the, the Q, but sort of this whole camp scene where all sorts of people would be able to come together. That was one place where where trans people could express themselves, where they could, you know, dress in a gender other than that assigned at birth. By the 1970s, we begin to see formal trans organizations emerge. So the first one in Australia was Seahorse, founded in Sydney in 1971. You also see by the 70s the emergence of a more distinct trans scene, and you begin to see also the emergence of trans sex worker scenes, especially in Sydney around Darlinghurst, but it's also in Melbourne and Perth and, and the other major cities as well. By the 80s, we begin to see more trans activism. So actual pushes from the trans community and new organizations that are really pushing for the right to be recognized in their affirmed gender, for the right to change their birth certificates, and for the right to, to 
anti-discrimination. So not to have to be fired um, if they decide to transition, to not be denied housing, to not be denied services. You get another wave of activism in the 1990s, and that wave of activism is even more successful. And during the 1990s is when most states and territories begin to change their laws to bring in anti-discrimination protections, to begin to recognize trans people in their affirmed genders. And this sort of continues into the 2000s. And by the teens, we, we have seen a lot more trans visibility, both in Australia and around the world. And the final chapter of the book really looks at sort of the last 10 years or so, where we've seen a lot of movement going on all at once. But you, I think the two big themes is we've seen on the one hand, a lot more affirmation of trans people in the law, a lot more affirmation of trans people in healthcare settings, but a massive, massive anti-trans movement and backlash that sort of has emerged, especially in the wake of the marriage equality campaign. And so the last chapter is sort of looking at where we're at now and and um, how trans people and their allies continue to mobilize to, to, to continue to live their authentic selves in the public. Wow, that's an amazing summary. You did that so expertly, obviously. <laughs> Thank you. Know, you. This, know this stuff well and you're obviously like just by the nature of being in the world of academia, you've obviously got that deep knowledge, so I appreciate that summary. Oh, look, uh, one of the challenges yeah. I'd quickly say about the book is, so, I mean, what I just gave you there is what we might call the dominant narrative, and the book does give us um, dominant narratives of trans history, but one other thing that the book that I always try to do is very much encompass that diversity within the dominant narrative because there's as many trans histories and trans experiences as there are trans people. So I do my best to try and get the dominant narrative, but of course also account for all the diversity within that. Which is a challenge. But, I was going to say that's yeah. not, a, not a simple task, and that, no, book, could it's have, not. that book could have probably been a lot bigger, even you know, than what than what you've described. I was curious to know that the Transgender Australia, this book that you've written, is actually the first book to chart this changing social, medical, legal, and lived experiences of trans and gender diverse people in Australia since 1910. Why is it that it's sort of, I guess, been largely ignored by historians previously? And I just sort of did a bit of research and prep for our conversation today, and I looked at the 2016 census, which isn't that wildly long ago, and it only counted 1,260 um, gender-diverse people in Australia at the time. Now, I, I would imagine that's quite low. Um, I'm not sure, but, you know, we have 25 million-odd people here. So, yeah, I just, I just want to know why it sort of not happened before. There's a lot to say about that. First and foremost, that census data, to be quite blunt, is rubbish, both for 2016 and 2021, because the census actually doesn't ask properly if people are trans. It actually doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, where those numbers come from is there's a very oddly worded question about gender that has some scope for non-binary, but then not everyone ticks that and no one has ever really been able to interpret it. And if you're a trans person who's not non-binary, you know, a trans woman or a trans man, well, then you wouldn't tick that box. You would just tick the box woman or man. So actually the census data is completely unreliable. And I know trans activists, along with LGBTIQ activists more broadly, have been pushing to get the census to actually accurately ask questions in a respectful and affirming way to mm -hmm. get reliable figures on trans people, not to mention um, 
we also don't know the number of gay and lesbian people in Australia because it's never been asked on the census. So, sorry, that was a long-winded response. No, I, I, don't I, trust I, the I, census. I must it's admit, wrong. this is where you, your academic <laughs> prowess comes in. I didn't even look at what the question was. I just looked at the, I guess, the, the box, if you like. That this no, I mean, I admit, I don't know the exact wording of the question, but I've seen all sorts of activists and advocates who've talked about how, like, the census is not actually reflecting it's not actually asking the question what's really happening is people are answering a different question in a way that then the census is sort of like oh well i guess this might mean that um without checking or kind of going into like subcategories or anything exactly so um but going back to the other part of your question i think ignore my i don't think that's the right word to say historians have ignored it um First, I'd say there are other historians who have written about various aspects of trans history. Um, One book that I do strongly recommend to any listeners is Lucy Chesser wrote a book uh, in 2008 called Parting With My Sex. And what Lucy did was she looked at examples of people who lived in a gender or were caught dressing in a gender other than their sex assigned at birth from about the mid-19th century till about 1920. So in many ways, I kind of pick up where, where Lucy left off. But Lucy is also very cautious that for the same reasons I mentioned before, she doesn't use the word trans to describe these people because that language didn't exist then. So she does look at examples of gender crossing and does sort of, again, present what what might be interpreted as trans possibilities, but she doesn't definitively put the label on. And there are other historians who've also written short articles and other pieces about various parts of trans history. But this book is the first to sort of give a much more broader overview that covers over 100 years. And again, returning to your original question after my long-winded academic spiel there, I don't think that it's been ignored. I just think that it hadn't necessarily been on the radar. And again, we're in a much an era now of much more trans visibility, which is absolutely fabulous and amazing. And there's more people who are willing to be interviewed. So oral histories were a huge part of my of my research. And so I think there's just now more possibilities to do trans history. And there are other scholars doing trans history that I'm definitely aware of. And so while I'm very excited about this book, this book is not going to be the last thing written on trans history. And I think it's going to be amazing to see what comes going forward. Absolutely. No, I think you've, you've set it up well like that. How did you navigate, I guess, the best way to provide this discussion? You talked about the dominant narrative and, of course, you know, within this you've interviewed a range of trans and gender diverse people for the book, you, which you, you would have had to sort of decide who to select and what stories to tell. What was there? Was there a process, a curation process for you to do this? Yeah, that is such a tough question. And there probably, the short answer probably is there wasn't a method to my madness. But I, I think what it is, is when doing these oral history interviews, certainly I'm always jotting down notes and pulling out from every interview some of what I think are the most significant aspects of the interview, um, the most significant aspects of their lives. Some people, you know, particular figures, it was quite obvious that they were involved in a particular historical moment or a particular activist group or a particular event. So that was always where what was going to be most important from their interviews. Um, so, but, but what does come together as you're interviewing more and more people is you begin to get these sort of collective pictures of dominant themes from different time periods. And so in writing the book, between the oral history interviews, but also the media coverage, the archival records, the personal archives that people shared. So there was a lot of other stuff that, in many ways, I guess, almost, this is probably a terrible analogy, I'm awful at analogies, but almost gave the skeleton to the dominant narrative. And then it was bringing in 
aspects of people's personal stories and the other records to to sort of flesh it out. I hope that narrative that, yeah, that analogy okay, actually that, worked. That, no, that, that I understand what you're saying. Yeah, but also part of that was also thinking in structuring the book. I always knew some of it was going to be chronological, but it was also thinking thematic. So, what are the key themes that I want to cover here? Well, I definitely want to talk about the legal changes that have happened. And so, there's some chapters that are much more focused on law reform, and linked with that, of course, is the activists who really pushed for law reform. There's one chapter that I that I call firsts. And I also sort of started saying that any historian who calls anyone the first of anything is a brave historian because there will always be someone else who comes along and says, no, I did this before them, or did you know about so-and-so? Oh, of course. And that's, <laughs> of the, course. Thing. that's the risk. If you say you're the first or the, you know, whatever Perceived first is, is the way I, I give my little perceived. disclaimer there. That's I say nice. perceived first. But that chapter, I mean, it looks at, for instance – early examples of trans people who were the first to run for political office or trans religious figures, trans sports figures, trans fashionistas. I mean, there's one story I tell about Lady Paula Howard, who was going to the Melbourne Cup Carnival in the 1970s, was even winning awards at Fashions on the Field. <laughs> like, which, and there's Amazing. a photo in the book as well. Oh, I know. When I read that story, I was like, for real? And I, we actually managed to track down, thanks to, huge thanks to Greer McGeary, the president of Seahorse Victoria, had old photo albums of Lady Paula Howard. You want the photo evidence of this? We do. Don't you? We've got it. We've got it. Like, it's beautiful dress. It's, it, there is a photo in the book. Um, where was, sorry, I got distracted there. No, just so, about yeah. all the sections you're talking about, all the different, <laughs> yeah. I guess, the areas in which, it's, you know, trans and gender diverse people have, you know, had success. In exactly. Way. So it's bringing in, so yeah, the book, I organized it chronologically and thematically, drawing on big picture themes. Try Look, I interviewed over 100 people, and there's also people that I didn't interview, but who've either published themselves or people have since passed, and elements of their stories have come into it as well. So done the best I can to include as much as I can, but realistically, wasn't going to get everyone. And I think the two other things I was very, very conscious of in writing this were both geographic and cultural diversity. So a lot of the activism and a lot of the laws in Australia around trans rights and LGBTIQ rights more broadly are state-based. So I wanted to make sure that I was including people from every part of the country. So some of the chapters are split, actually like, oh, here's the Queensland story, here's the WA uh, story, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And definitely don't forget Tasmania. They, so Tasmania is in there as well. Never forget Tasmania. Um, and... Also, in terms of diversity, I'm very conscious to weave stories of Black, Indigenous, and people of color, both across the book, but also there is a chapter that focuses specifically on the histories of Black, Indigenous, and people of color, because they do have distinctions, um, both in how how different cultures understand or um conceived gender diversity and of course also living experiences because they are living not just as say a trans person but they might be living as a an aboriginal trans person as a sister girl and that is a very distinct experience from a white trans person absolutely no i think that's really important to kind of i guess unpack all that as well so what ways have transgender people been able to create a new perspective on cultural diversity in australia because you just touched on the fact there is obviously nuances between um, people of color and and different backgrounds and maybe even where they've grown up geographically and if they're rural or metro and all those pieces as well how have you actually kind of been able to get to some place of perspective yeah that's a really good question um, I think some of it is shared 
and I think that's a key point that some of the people I interviewed said is that one thing that they really wanted to get across was you know, they're just trying to live ordinary lives. I use that word ordinary loosely, of course, but they just want to live their lives. And that's one thing that comes across. Um, but I think if I, if I think about this from a different angle, one thing that really stood out, and this came especially from the, the very generous sister girls, brother boys, and gender diverse Aboriginal people that I interviewed, was that their understanding, or understanding might not be the right word, their, their cultural framings of gender are different from and sexuality are different from Western understandings. Actually, some of the Fa Fa Fine people I interviewed, this came across as well. Whereas in Western understandings, we're often saying sexuality and gender aren't the same thing. And they're not. They're not the same thing. But in these other cultures, well, they kind of they're not the same, but they're actually more linked than perhaps we see them in Western cultures. And there is a really brilliant quote in the book that is from a deceased Aboriginal elder, so I'm not going to say her name, but who I did interview before she passed away, where she explained that just so eloquently. And I just thought it was a wonderful quote about sort of for sister girl identity, the way she put it was it was about spirit and having a female spirit and how that female spirit might manifest very differently for different sister girls, but still for her and for sister girls, she said it came back to spirit. Mm, and um, one of the Fafafine people I interviewed talked about how Again, in in Samoan culture, fafafine very much was a cultural role, and it had a cultural role in the village. And so, how that role played out, again, a person might might express it in very different ways. Um, whereas, I think one of the the problems, I suppose, might be the right word in the Western discourse, is the language of trans and the understandings of trans came out of medical and psychological discourse. Ah, so they had these really, yeah, 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 yeah. So they had these really rigid sort of this is what trans is, and either you are this or you aren't this. And much of the book talks about, you know, on the one hand, that could help give labels that could give definitions that could give connections for trans people but if you don't fit those suddenly you're excluded and that's one of the reasons also why trans people especially since the 1980s and 90s have been trying to challenge that language and have tried to challenge those labels and then you've seen this proliferation of other labels and which is a wonderful thing and part of that though is sort of well i don't see myself in this label so i think this label is more appropriate but then if someone else doesn't like that label they go for another one and labels for some people are helpful for some people they're not and i guess in my rambling way i'm saying identity is messy Mm, (laughs) it's a messy thing and i think the other cultural perspectives um show how much of it actually is constructed when we look at their their perspectives absolutely and this is quite i guess a localized question to the audience in australia but is there any specific experiences that are unique to this country for trans and gender diverse people? Or us there's sort of, I guess, some unique experiences that are not so unique actually because, you know, there's prejudices in the workplace or the way in which you have a label or the way in which I guess we move this conversation along historically, like like your book does. Is there kind of, I guess, a shared collective or you know, is it like what I've just, you know, naively maybe assumed that Australia was behind in all of this and 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 really, um, you know, perhaps is still catching up in some ways? Well, the funny thing is, uh, I know we were joking about Australia being behind before. Australia actually hasn't been behind in, in a good chunk of this. Um, right now, I think, at least in terms of laws 
and access to healthcare. In many ways, Australia is actually ahead. More progressive? Yeah. Can use look, that word? <laughs> Australia, Australia and Aotearoa, New Zealand are doing much better at affirming trans people's rights, at least in law, especially when compared to the United States and the United Kingdom. Um, hasn't always been that way, but no, actually, but that's a, yeah, it's, but to return to the, the bigger question, the, the most obviously distinctly Australian material is the sister girls, the brother boys, and the, the gender diverse trans mob, because obviously Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, they are, you know, they are from Australia. So this is their country. Mm. And so obviously their cultural experiences and their living experiences are, are certainly distinct to Australia. But yes, I would say with your other other part of your question, the patterns and some of those dominant issues of, as you say, discrimination, activism, fights for rights, it, it's, you know, various, just even social organizing, of course, a lot of that is a shared international experience. Um, and in, you know, the book even talks about some of, for instance, the person who founded Seahorse, the first um, trans group in Australia, was a migrant who who was British, had lived in Malaya, had lived in Hong Kong, was living in Sydney, had brought an American trans friend over. And the American trans friend was like, you've got to organize the girls. And then she created the group. So there were always international influences. And they went other ways as well. Um and but as for but of course again emphasize there's distinct Australian manifestations because of course the experiences in Sydney or in Melbourne or Tasmania or Northern Territory they're obviously still living it in their own distinct way even if as you say there's a sort of dominant um, common patterns of of trans people's experiences around the world. Excellent. So changing tack a little bit, I'm circling back to the questions I ask all my guests as we wrap up our conversation today. Just thinking across your career and across maybe just even your personal life, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given and why has it been so important to you? Okay, this is really controversial, possibly what I'm going to have to say, depending on who the listeners are. (laughs) The best advice I ever received very early in my career was beware middle-aged men with visions. Do you mind me asking if you're middle-aged yet? I don't know, actually, because I don't know when middle age officially oh, starts. You, but... you know, can I tell you, you know when you're in it. I'm 47. I know I'm in it. You know, I'm, I don't, worried... I'm not young anymore. No one goes, here's that young woman over there. Please I'm worried I've recently entered it, but at least I don't have a vision. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't but like no, it, though. I seriously, like that it. was the best advice I ever got, and I keep coming back to it, especially with all sorts of, to put it, put it simply all sorts of challenges I've come across in the workplace and in other aspects of Mm. life. Beware middle-aged men with visions is very apt advice. Awesome. That (laughs) needs to be a bumper sticker I've decided. That's going to date me as well because nobody has those anymore. That's very 80s and 90s. Um, Look, if we spoke in a year's time, uh, is it going to be another book or something else that you might have in your kind of, I guess, wheelhouse that you're trying to achieve and just want to share that with us? Look, uh, from this particular project, there's always there's little things still coming. Um, there's a report that I recently did with the Gender Center and SWAP, which is the Sex Workers Outreach Project, um, as part of the Special Commission into LGBTIQ Hate Crimes that's been running in New South Wales. We did a, some research and a report on the history of trans people's experiences of hate crimes and abuse from the police. And um, it is officially it's on the it's on the website of the special commission the report now but i know the gender center has plans around trans day of remembrance in november to to 
launch that a bit more formally. So there is that coming out. But uh, look, I am working on other projects. I mean, you mentioned at the very beginning some of my other work, which has been on the military. So I am working with a team of other historians on history of sex and sexuality in the Australian Defence Force. Wow, um, that'll I know, be a minefield. It, exactly, <laughs> correct. Um, we will be publishing from that, but we haven't written the book yet. That might be a few more years down the track. But Oh, thanks for giving me, us the heads yes, up. Yes, giving you the heads up, but we're. We, I've started writing some of the sample chapters and my, you know, we're looking at everything from venereal disease histories to sexual assault, unfortunately, to homosexuality, marriages, relationships. Um, there's a lot to say about sex and the Australian Defence Force. But on the trans history, look, having done all this work, I'm sure there'll be little things popping up here and there. But as I said, there's already all, so many other awesome both trans and cis people who are working in the space of trans history. And I am very looking forward to seeing their work as it comes out. Just to wrap up our conversation today, a final takeaway message for anyone listening on the politics of transgender history. Um, trans people, gender diverse people have always been here and they've always been um, navigating society and finding ways to express themselves. And they've always been, um, you know, pushing for more rights. They've always been yeah, I guess uh, to put it another way, this isn't some sort of fad. This isn't some sort of new craze um, in some lefty conspiracy. This is people who have always been here, who have been trying to live their authentic lives and should absolutely be affirmed and respected and supported. And here is here is that history. Thank you so much for sharing this. And of course, if anyone is interested to find out more, there's some details on the show notes and of course, grab Noah's book. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for the chat today. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.